Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. This morning we start uh, a new section of our series. For those of you who don't know, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and it's been really exciting. We've, uh, we've, we've done quite a lot so far, and yet we're still in chapter 1. <laughs> but it is a, a great journey, and we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark this year and taking a few breaks along the way. But we're starting a series, a four-part series, looking at four stories where we see the heart of Jesus, four stories that reveal his heart and his compassion for people. They show us glimpses of his character, what he's like, how he responds in different situations, and they show us his passion to reach the lost, to cleanse people, to heal them, and to touch them in their lives. And so far, we've, we've been introduced to Jesus. John the Baptist rocked up on the scene right at the start, and he says, one comes after me. I've come to prepare the way for someone who is so mighty I cannot even tie his shoelaces. Jesus, the mighty one, we're introduced to him. He is then baptized by John, and a voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And, and, and people's attention gets raised. Who is this? Who is this person? He's then led into the desert. He's tempted by Satan himself and comes out victorious. He goes along ministering to people, preaching this gospel, this good news of faith in God and repentance. He then calls disciples and he says, come follow after me, leave what you're doing, abandon those things and come and follow after me. A call that he is still extending to people today. Follow me. He shows that he has authority over every evil spirit, that he has the power to heal many illnesses and diseases. And this is just chapter one. And now we start to see in these stories that, that the heart of Jesus is for people. We, we get this chance to observe what's really at the core of, of who Jesus is. I don't know if you've been in a situation where you, you're with someone who you know or you're with someone who you're getting to know and you see them in an instance, in a moment, in, a, in an observation. You go, oh, that's something about them I didn't know. You see how they respond maybe in a situation where they're dealing with a child and you go, oh, wow, that person's really passionate about children. They really, really love children. Or you see them at a sports game and you go, wow, that person's really competitive. That person's really, really, really competitive. I hope you never have to watch me in a football game. But we observe these moments, these four stories in Jesus where we go, oh, wow, that's what he's like. That's his heart. That's what he cares about. And so we kick off at the, at the end of chapter one with this hinge story about Jesus' devotion, no life, his private life, how he seeks God in prayer. But I want us to, to read, and you can turn if you have your Bibles in Mark 1, to, to start in verse 32, though, just to get a bit of context just to end off the last section. And so it says in, in Mark 1, 32, that, that that evening, you see, um, Jesus had just been ministering and healing people, and he'd healed um, Peter's, uh, Simon's mother-in-law. I wrote in my notes here, avoid bad mother-in-law joke. Um, it might be because I'm getting married soon, so maybe I should just step away from that one and obey my notes. Um, but, but that evening, after he's done this healing with people, it says, that evening at sundown, they, the city, brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. 
and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons, many demons. You see, it was the Sabbath that day, and so people waited until evening when it would end to, to come to Jesus, and, and they did that after their busy days or not so busy days because it was the Sabbath, but afterwards they come to Jesus. He's at Simon's house. They're there together, and they start seeking him out because they want to experience his ministry. Sick people are needing healing. There are people who need deliverance. They want to be rid of this demonic influence in their lives, and they're coming to Jesus at nighttime, after work hours, to seek his ministry, to seek his touch. And there's this crazy sentence, the whole city gathered together at the door. I mean, this is a pastor's dream where you don't even have to go and get people. They're coming to you. And it's as if the whole city, I mean, just imagine that. Imagine that there was this ministry evening, this moment where there was no advert, no marketing, and the whole city, just by hearing about what's going on, people talking about it, rock up, and you can't even fit everyone inside. They're gathered at the door, waiting, seeking Jesus to be ministered to. He's become popular in the best sense. He's admired by people. He's sought out, and his ministry is quite clearly, at this stage, successful. Successful. Just imagine what it would be like if you were in your office at work, and all of your colleagues just started gathering at the door seeking to hear about the gospel. Imagine what it would be like if you were a missionary and, and you land and you go to your hotel and all of the people in that tribe just rocked up at the door and they're waiting, they're waiting. And I wonder how long, we don't know, but I wonder how long Jesus spent going into the night healing people, preaching the gospel and delivering them from evil spirits. It must have been a busy night of ministry. That's why a lot of pastors take Mondays off. You have busy days and busy nights of ministry. And in this city, Jesus is admired. In this city, he's having success. And so in verse 35, we see what happens next. It says, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. You see, we get this interesting glimpse now into Jesus' private life. We get this interesting glimpse into his, his devotional life, his, his quiet times as they've been come to, to court. And it's quite a simple verse, actually. It's quite a simple what, when, where verse. What's he doing? Jesus is praying. Where is he doing it? Well, he's, he's praying in a private place, in a, in a desolate place. He's making the effort to go out. And when does he do it? Very early in the morning. See, prayer was something so important to Jesus. See, before we even get to some of these stories that reveal some of his heart, we'll see that how Jesus developed his heart, how Jesus sought intimacy with God. Well, that was actually the first thing. Seek first the kingdom of God. And so prayer became this vitally important pattern for Jesus' life. It was a habit. In Luke 5 verse 16, it says that he would often withdraw to pray, that this was a habit that he would do because, because everything that Jesus did depended on him having intimacy with the Father. Everything that Jesus did depended on him having intimacy 
with the Father. I want you to consider a relationship, if you will. Let's, let's pick a marriage. I, I heard this illustration when I was very young, and it's never left me. Imagine a married couple would wake up, speak for 5, 10, 15, maybe 30 minutes, and speak and no, at no other point during the day. Maybe at the end of the night before they go to bed, they speak again for another 5, 10, 15, 30 minutes. And that is all the contact they have. Sometimes they go out and they'll be with a group of people. That might be a bit of social. I wonder what your, what your, what your expectation for that relationship would be. With that level of communication, do you think it would be a, a healthy relationship? And yet, that's somehow how we approach our relationship with God. See, relationships without communication die. And it's not just that we talk, right? It's not just that we talk. Imagine being in a relationship where your significant other, the only time they ever spoke to you was when they wanted something, right? The only time they ever came to you was like, I need help. I just need something. Just do something. This is a functional relationship for me. And yet, that doesn't gel with us in a romantic relationship. That wouldn't gel with us in a parent-child relationship. And for some reason, it, it seems like it would be more acceptable in our relationship with God. Relationships without communication do not last. They're not healthy. And they shouldn't be just about asking for stuff. There should be often communication. There should be deep communication, a sharing of heart, an openness and a vulnerability, and a willingness to hear the other person's opinion and instruction. I hope that doesn't seem too hard or heavy, but if that's our relationship with God, that's going to throw everything out of sync. Everything's going to be out of whack. If the way that we communicate with God is little and only when we need something, everything else will be out of whack. And we will ask ourselves, why does God not seem more real to me? Why does he not seem to be coming through? Intimacy with God is not very different from intimacy with other people. It requires vulnerability, trust, but it requires communication and time. See, Jesus prioritized this. That's why he wakes up very early in the morning, the first thing in the morning, even after a night of busy ministry. He's up before dark. Now, if you're like me, that's not that great an example. You don't want that example. And I've heard many people say to me, you know, I'm, I'm just better in the evening. I'm more of a night person. I also find myself to be a night owl. And you know what? I can't be legalistic about that. There's no rule in the Bible that says when you have to pray or spend your, the majority of your key time to pray. But what I will say is it's better to have the rehearsal before you have the show. Right? If, if, if we want to orient our hearts before we do our day, it's probably better to do that at the beginning. To spend that time orienting our hearts at the beginning of the day will set the tone for how we go about the rest of the day. Jesus did that. That's the example he sets. How strong you want to make that as a principle is up to you. I am a night owl. But as best as I can to my ability, and I'm not perfect, I try and follow this model because I think if it worked for Jesus, it's likely going to work for me. See, Jesus prioritized prayer, and he did so in a sacrificial way. He sacrificed for prayer. After a busy night, he's up in the morning. He's away into a desolate place. He's, he takes himself out of an environment where he's going to be disturbed. And he prays. 
How much are we willing to sacrifice for prayer? What are we willing to sacrifice for prayer? And does that maybe say something about what we think about prayer and its usefulness? See, Jesus shows us what a disciplined life of devotion to God and intimacy with God looks like. He has this pattern, withdraw and engage. Jesus did not engage with people before he had withdrawn. He was always withdrawing to be with the Father, to have intimacy. And that's, that's quite a general assessment of Jesus' prayer life, but I actually want to get more specific. I want to ask, why now? Why in this very moment? What reasons are there that Jesus goes away to pray very early in the morning in a desolate place? Why? And I have three reasons. Three reasons that I think will teach us something so powerful about prayer. Teach us something so powerful about this instance. And the first one is really important. Success makes us vulnerable. Success makes us vulnerable. You see, Jesus had just had this amazing night of ministry, right? He preached the sermon, and everybody was like, wow, right? He had the worship night, and it was packed. People were at the door, right? People were being healed. Stuff was happening, but he knew that we are most vulnerable and most weak just after we've been victorious. Speak to pastors. Speak to worship leaders. They'll tell you this is true. And if you've got examples in your own life, you might be able to testify to it as well. But there's something about success or victory or triumph that just makes us vulnerable. I think the enemy just wants to cut us down, right? We start to feel strong. We start to feel ready. We can take it on. And he's like, okay, cool. You don't see what's in front of you. And he comes and he brings temptation. Jesus knew of Old Testament examples like David, Gideon, Samson just to name a few, and I can't go into their stories, but if you, if you know those stories, if you've heard them in Sunday school, you've maybe read them recently, you'll know that David was triumphant, and then he fell drastically. Gideon, triumphant, and then succumbed to fear. Samson, triumphant, proud. We are so prone to weakness just after we've had our greatest triumphs. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands... Take heed lest he falls. If you think that you stand, be vigilant lest you fall. He says something similar in Galatians. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That's a good thing. It's okay to think, you know what, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm spiritual and my brother is in a moment of weakness and I'm going to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. I'm, I'm going to come and uplift them. I'm going to come and help them. Let's, let's do this together. But then he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, this is not the only occasion that Jesus does this, that this pattern comes up where he has this moment of triumph, but then he intentionally goes away because he knows he's most vulnerable after success. After he feeds the 5,000 in Mark 6.46, it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up the mountain to pray. Fed the 5,000, amazing miracles. Right, disciples, get out of here. Okay, crowds, cheerio, you're full. I'm going up to pray. I'm going up to pray. 
in Luke 5, after he's cleansed the leper, it says that even more, the report about him, this fame, went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Withdraw and engage. Sometimes we're so busy engaging, we never withdraw, and that's why we stumble. Jesus knows that we are most vulnerable after our greatest triumphs. It's the space where pride can come in, where we don't see the, the stumbling blocks that are right at our feet because we're so busy reveling in our victory. And if Jesus had this pattern, how much more should we? The second reason is this, temptation. Temptation that might come after triumph. Temptation is fought with prayer. It cannot be fought without prayer. See, Jesus knew that prayer was vital to have victory over the temptation. It's one thing to know that you're vulnerable after success. It's another thing to then go, well, how do I fight that vulnerability? How do I prepare myself? What did Jesus do? He withdrew and he prayed. And there were likely many temptations facing Jesus at this point, just after this amazing night of ministry. The temptation to maybe please people, to seek their approval, to do things in a way that, that they would like, to accept their wish. They wanted to make him a political, earthly king. Jesus knew that wasn't why he was there. But it would have been tempting. That's why Satan tries that. Bow to me and I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus responds with the word and he protects himself with prayer. He could have been tempted to abandon the mission of the cross for his own benefit. But Jesus knew he had to fight this temptation with prayer and his mission depended on it. This is why when he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, just before he's about to be arrested and taken and crucified, he is praying and he instructs his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Okay, Temptation is going to come. The way you're not going to enter into it is if you watch and pray. And then he says, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And that gives us a clue as to how this actually works. How, how does prayer help us fight temptation? Well, prayer takes our focus off of the flesh. Right? It strengthens our spirits. It's a means by which we are spiritually nourished. Prayer is a going to God and saying, Father, you are great. Strengthen me. Heal me. I'm feeling this vulnerability. Won't you, won't you fill me with your spirit? Won't you help me to fight these temptations? And prayer is a means by which then the flesh is restrained. Right? We see this in Galatians. Walk in step with the spirit, not in your flesh. And so not praying allows our weak flesh to lead us. But when we pray and seek God and seek to be filled with the Spirit, then we walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Prayer enables us to do that. If you find yourself succumbing to the flesh often, I'd be fairly confident to say it's because there's a lack in prayer life. Either a lack in doing it or a lack in the quality of prayer one thing to pray every day again if you're going through a list of needs it's another thing to bear your heart to God and say come and change me I think sometimes we pray for such easy stuff it's 
like God who is able to change. It says in the Proverbs that he's able to turn the, the hearts of kings like streams of water in his hands. He can change people the way that they think. He can change hearts. He can take someone who's stubborn, broken, proud, and all super angry. This is Ryan Todd before he meets Jesus. And take that person and change them and keep changing them because, he, well, he needs a lot more changing. He can take proud people and make them humble. He can take the most aggressive, violent person and turn them into a gentle, loving person. He can do that. He can protect us from temptation, which is why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation. J.C. Ryle, a, a pastor, once said, praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. And you may have experienced this. There's something about when we find ourselves in a, in a bad space, when we're sinning, and, and then we go into that Adam and Eve mentality. Oh, I need to hide. Put on some, some leaves and, and hide in the bushes. And so we don't pray, and it becomes this vicious cycle of staying away from God. But when we pray, God empowers us and strengthens us, not only to deny our flesh and to not walk in sin, but also he, he reminds us of the gospel. We're reminded of his grace and mercy, that there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us, and that even if we stumble, we don't have to hide anymore. He's got open arms. But the moment we allow that guilt and shame in, and that sin to settle, it usually leads us away from prayer. But if we will prioritize prayer and sacrifice for it, it will lead us out of sin. The whole point of the gospel is that we would have intimacy with the Father. And the third reason that Jesus prays in this moment is because good decisions depend on prayer. See, Jesus would withdraw to pray and seek the Father's will. In John 5, it says this, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. A few verses later, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I think sometimes what we tend to do, and I'm guilty of this myself, is we take our will and ask for a stamp of approval. We take our desires and we say, God, just, just won't you like give us a stamp of approval on this? Just make this happen. This is what I really want. And Jesus says, no, I don't do anything of my own. But as I hear withdraws up the mountain in the desolate place. He goes away and he listens. He doesn't just talk. He listens and he says, Father, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to, to act now in this moment? What decision do I make next? Where do I go? Who do I preach to? Who do I, where am I meant to step? I want to make good, godly decisions. Father, show me your will. And so he hears, he listens in Luke 5.30, because he seeks not his own will, but the will of him who sent him. Interestingly enough, in Luke chapter 6, 
before Jesus chooses the disciples, Luke says that in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. How interesting is that? Just before the morning, the night before, Jesus calls the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples that we know. The night before that, he doesn't sleep a wink. It says he prays all night, goes up a mountain on some sort of spiritual retreat, and he prays straight through the night because he knows that this decision is vital. The, these, these people that he's going to bring along who are going to be the foundations of the church, he has to go and pick these people out. And whether or not he knew what he needed to know, I don't know, but Luke says he went up the mountain and he prayed straight through the night because the gravity of the decision was so big. The the next time, to my knowledge, that you see Jesus praying through the night, it's before he's about to go to the cross where he's wrestling with that temptation. And he's like, I can't sleep. I'm, I'm anxious. I mean, it says that he falls on his face and he sweats blood praying, God, not my will, but your will. It's in this instance, he's not seeking the will of God. He knows the will of God. But now he's trying to, asking God, please help me to, to, to align myself to that will, to not run away from it because it's difficult. How do we pray before big decisions? Jesus felt this need to labor in prayer so that he would make the right choice, so that he would be living according to God's will. He prioritized prayer. He sacrificed for it. And so Jesus prayed because he knew that after this great success, he was vulnerable to temptation. He prayed because he knew that it was vital then to battle temptation with prayer. And he prayed because he sought the Father's will to make the right decision in that space. And what's interesting then is we see this all come together as we pick up in verse 36. It says that Simon and those who were with him searched for him. It's a bit of hide and seek going on here. And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Still as popular, still as admired, still as successful. Everybody's looking for you. But he had withdrawn. They had to look to find him. So how does Jesus respond? After this time of withdrawing in prayer, how does he now engage? The whole city is basically waiting for him to come and bring the word What does he say? What does he do? He said to them, let us go. Let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. And it closes and says, and he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. I mean, for for some of us, as we follow that story, we might go, what? Like the whole city's there. Everyone's waiting. They want ministry. You're admired. You're successful. Things are going. I mean, you can plant like a mega church there. You, you, it's just, just go for it. There's the easy harvest. There's the low-hanging fruit. That would have been the easy choice. But this decision was a fruit and a result of Jesus' time in prayer. His intimate time with his Father. His spirit is strengthened And he receives direction. He knows that this is not his purpose. He's not there to stay in one place, 
to take the easy road, to take the easy option, but his purpose is to move forward. He says that, that this is why I came out. This is a purpose statement for Jesus. And prayer and purpose are so intricately tied together in his ministry. Because he goes away to pray, he withdraws, he receives direction, he receives God's instructions, and he comes out and says, no, I know what my purpose is. Yes, it looks like that would be the right option, but not every open door needs to be walked through. Not every open door needs to be walked through. If we only use our rational, natural minds to make decisions that seem obvious to us, we won't really need prayer unless to ask for some blessing on it. But Jesus' example and the call on us is to go away and seek God's will, to be spending time with Him, to not take the easy road just because it's there. See, he battles this temptation to bathe in his success. He seeks the will of God. He discerns it. And he knew what his purpose was. I mean, we, we need this. I think of the apostles in Acts. How right at the beginning, they come out and they say, God, tell us where we need to do. Tell us what we need to, where we need to go. Show us the steps that you have planned for us. And then they say, give us boldness to walk in them. Jesus received direction and he also received boldness to take that step of faith and walk in it. Because he came with a purpose to preach the gospel, to bring the power of the kingdom to all Galilee and to all the world. It would have gravely affected us had Jesus just stuck there in one place. But because of his prayer life, and walking in his purpose, we're here as a church. See, prayer powers purpose. It powered Jesus' purpose and it, it powers ours. J.C. Ryle again says this. He says, a praying master like Jesus can have no prayerless servants. Right? A praying master like Jesus can have no prayerless servants. If he was a praying master, we need to be prayerful servants. He prioritized and practiced a pattern, a habit of prayer. Intimacy with God was his most important goal. Again, see how he does it. Read a gospel, any of them, and you'll see, particularly Luke shows this, he withdraws and he engages. He withdraws and he engages. And if we want to walk in purpose, if we want to engage with those around us, if we want to engage in worship, in loving the community, in loving our families, in being good followers of Christ, if we want to engage, then we need to learn to withdraw. See, engaging sometimes is easier for us because it just keeps us busy. It can sometimes be easier for us. But Jesus made a habit of withdrawing first. And then engaging. And, and, and as we saw in the beginning, it requires sacrifice. Jesus got up early while it was still dark. Now, I'm not going to tell you what time you should wake up. I'm not going to give you some planned out, structured plan that you need to follow to be like Jesus. But are you withdrawing? Are you spending time in intimate prayer? with your father. And, and if that sounds foreign to you, the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us how to pray. 
teach us. They saw something in Jesus. It's, it's okay for us to see something in Jesus' prayer life that seems like ours is lacking. It's okay to look there and go, well, my prayer life just doesn't look like that. Uh, one, of the, 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 one of the regrets maybe that I have is I spent two years as a Christian without really knowing how to spend time with God because I was too embarrassed to ask. I, was, I didn't even know what a quiet time was. I don't even know if that's a phrase that's used here. But they, everyone would talk. I was having my quiet time today. I was having my quiet time. And there I am. I'm, I'm worshiping. I love God. I'm, I, I started memorizing the Bible because I didn't know what else to do. I started in Colossians for some reason. And, and I just didn't want to ask because I'd be embarrassed. Two years went by until eventually, I, I don't even know who I spoke. Someone just like started talking to me. I started to piece things together. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, want a quiet time. It doesn't have to be quiet. You can play worship music if you want, but it's about withdrawing. One of my favorite sentences in the Sermon of the Mount is where Jesus is teaching them, and he's teaching them how to pray, and he does the Lord's Prayer. But just after that, he says, when you pray, assuming you will, he says, go into a separate room and shut the door. What do we need to shut the door on so that we might have important, vital, intimate times of prayer? There's a lot going on in our lives. There's a lot we need to withdraw from. What sacrifices do we need to make? What do we need to shut the door on so that we have time to be with our Father? Because all of the things we think are important, all of the things we think are so critical, are not nearly as critical as that. Because that will empower us to be better fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, servants of Jesus, ministers, reaches of people it'll empower us to be more compassionate humble gentle to make good decisions and to not succumb to temptation let me just summarize those those reasons and then i'll pray for us prayer is vitally important for us if we hope to resist temptation which is so often greatest after we've triumphed Prayer is necessary if we desire direction from God and to know His will. And prayer is critical if we wish to walk in purpose and in power. So let us, let us pray together as we close, and then we'll finish with a song and declare God's faithfulness together. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online, wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.